and welcome back to the Black Joy Archive. I'm your host, Mackenzie River Ford. I'm a producer, writer, and documentarian working from Baltimore to share Black Joy stories alongside a wonderful team, some of whom you met in our last series. With each mini-series of the Black Joy Archive, we unfold the histories behind our latest stories and deep dive into the practice of joy. I'm excited to guide you through our next three episodes, spotlighting Philadelphia's Black Star Film Festival. If you know, you know, Black Star is a mecca for Black and Indigenous indie filmmakers. Boasting a virtual and in-person program full of experimental, global, and local films, comprehensive panels and seminars, and an electrifying nightlife scene, Black Star is fertile soil for emerging filmmakers, curious cinephiles, and students of aesthetics. Black Joy is in the DNA of all of Black Star's projects, including their festival, magazine, filmmakers lab, and podcast. In our second Black Joy Archive series, I dive into the history and culture of Black Star. We'll give you all a little taste of how it feels to be a filmmaker in the thick of the festival's 12th year. To start, I spoke with Mayori Carmel Holmes, the curator, writer, and filmmaker who founded Black Star in 2012, about her background, why she built Black Star in Philly, and her hopes for the future. So join us as we take another trip into the Black Joy Archive. Welcome, Mayori Carmel Holmes. Um, it is a pleasure and an honor to meet and to be with you. So I wanted to talk a bit about the things we inherit from our mothers, because I noticed that theme um, at Black Star and some of your other projects, some of the conversations you've had on your podcast, Many Lumens, um, sort of revolve around this theme. And so I'm wondering if you would tell me about your mother um, and maybe a bit about her mother where are they from and, and what have they passed on to you in terms of your creative practice? Sure. Um, my mother grew up in a town called Harvey, which is south of the south side of Chicago, is my understanding. It's a small suburb, one of those Raisin in the Sun suburbs. And um, yeah, then she left at 16 to move to Los Angeles to go to college. And her mother is originally from Yazoo City, Mississippi. And she moved to Chicago, I think in high school, to go to high school or shortly after. So those are the people that I come from. Both of my mother and my grandmother are visual artists um, who did not have professional practices and very much instilled in their children. First is my grandmother. She made all of her children take piano. She took them to the opera. She made sure they went to museums. She very much wanted them to um, hone their artistic voices. She wanted my mother to go to art school and my mother didn't. My mother in turn wanted me to go to art school and I didn't. <laughs> naturally, naturally. Um, I think for me, I think my mother was scared and I think maybe a part of me was scared, but more so I was scared of not having wealth. And so my not going to art school started, which started in eighth grade. I got into an arts magnet and a humanities magnet. And I feel like, mm. but the last... 30 years have been uh, straddling the worlds of like making things happen for other people and trying to make them happen for myself. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother had uh, six living children and was a homemaker and then went back to school uh, when her youngest was in grade school and became a reading specialist. And so literature was really important to her. She also spent some time as a crossing guard, but home was also very, very important. She cooked 
my memories of her after she was retired, you know, were like eating her food. She also very um, graciously shared a lot with me. Like she shared recipes with me. She told me how she oh, made wow. her mac and cheese. She told me how she made her greens. Um, when I became vegan in high school, which coincided with my grandfather becoming macrobiotic, she made the greens vegan and everybody had to eat the vegan greens. <laughs> had to. Um, had to. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which was really sweet though. I mean, she had a lot of grandchildren. She didn't have to do that. Um, so I like to think that we had a special bond, but I think a lot of grandchildren felt like they had a special bond with her. She was good at that. My mother uh, was not a homemaker. She's a single mother. So she worked many jobs. She had a full-time job as an instructional designer and, and she's a playwright on the side. And it took me a long time to realize kind of how badass that was. I spent a lot of my childhood resentful that I didn't have Claire Huxtable, you know, that I didn't have somebody like making cupcakes and shit. And then when I got, you know, grown, I realized that my mother had managed to have a job and um, have an artistic practice on the side, have friendships, travel, and then cart me and my brother somehow magically to two completely separate lives. We didn't share anything not school, not an activity, not fathers. <laughs> we didn't, you know, and somehow we managed to get to everything. So I had a lot of independence and I had a lot of trust from her. And she also, you know, she was young when she had me, just 23. And so we found ourselves in my teens, like sharing friends. Like we would have friends who were like 10 years younger than her, 10 years older than me kind of thing. And um, that continues to this day. And so I wouldn't say she's like a sister. She's definitely my mother, but she, I think like a lot of people in her generation really wanted there to be an openness. She didn't feel she had had, you know, with her mother. And so, and I spent a lot of time because she had us so early. Most of her friends didn't have kids for another 10 or 15 years. And so we were always the kids around a bunch of adults. Me and my brother were very precocious. Sometimes that was welcome. Sometimes it wasn't. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Wow, that's that's really beautiful. Thank you for for sharing that about them. Um, I, I feel like I'm hearing that intergenerational relationships are like a very foundational part of your of your life from early on, and I, I see that I feel that having gone to Black Star, like I, that's like kind of in the DNA. You've called it like a family reunion before, so it's I, I feel like that's the matrilineal connection that's so beautiful. I also want to talk to you about. The film programs you've curated even before Black Star, um, which have started in 2012, uh, when did you start curating and what experiences have shifted the way you organize film programs today? Yeah, so I, um, in undergrad, worked on Howard Homecoming, like my freshman year, and worked on the hip hop conference there. And so I realized, like looking back, that I had been engaged with like public programming from Jump. I thought I wanted to be a curator when I went to school and then I changed my major a couple of times, but I'd started out in art history, ended up in history. I interned at Smithsonian, uh, the program in African-American culture. And yeah, I had had my eye on that world. And then I realized it didn't pay very much. (laughs) This is right. Um, Right. (laughs) uh, But I, I didn't really sort of consider some of that work curation until much later. So I didn't formally curate anything in my mind until much later, but I did program lots of things. And I went to school for film uh, at Temple 
first year of grad school, I put together a screening of classmates' work back in D.C. at a theater that I'd had a relationship with. I don't even remember how I got this relationship, but I put together this screening that first year and then started programming after that. Uh, A local gallery asked me to put together a film program for a Nina Simone tribute that they were doing. And then I got invited to do a program at the Painted Bright Arts Center that was focused on women. Then I had my own idea to do a project on women in hip hop. And so was was basically doing this cultural producing since my very early 20s. I'd also put together a film festival before Black Star called Black Lily. That was a women in uh, music and film festival. And that was 2007 and 2008. And then uh, shortly after that, um, 2011, uh, myself and my colleague, Sarazia Ibrahimi, put together a social justice film series called Kinoa. Hmm. I want to ask you a few questions about history. I know you said you got your degree ultimately or your bachelor's in history. And maybe I'll just start with like, how has your study of history impacted the work that you do with Black Star Projects? Yeah. I mean, I was always that kid that would read my social studies textbooks before school started and was just always really fascinated by stories of human life and social movements and things like that and continue to be. And so I ended up majoring in history because I just figured it would be something that I would be engaged in and that could serve me. You know, if I went to law school, if I decided to go into business, you know, it would be helpful. And it has been very much so. I've had a lot of different careers, <laughs> journalism, public relations, uh, you know, nonprofit administration. And I think being able to call from other people's experiences or my own has been useful. Thinking about lineage has been useful. Um, also knowing, you know, I think it's really important to know when you're not the first to do something because there's often a lot of anxiety and pressure if you think you're the first, but knowing that others have come before you and learning from their lessons is really powerful. And that's something that has definitely been a part of Black Star. I don't think I would have even known um, that creating a festival was possible if I hadn't gone to festivals, you know? And so I think about the National Black Arts Festival, which was really formative for me growing up and also going to the African Street Festival in Brooklyn and just other sort of, you know, events that were national and regional and local at the same time. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, what are the histories to be learned from other events in this way? I've learned so much, like you said, from like being in these spaces around, I mean, this culture, it's, it's a real culture. Black Star has its own culture um, that relates in an interesting way to the culture of Philadelphia. And actually, I do have a question about that. Like, how do you how do you see the festival, Black Star, the festival fitting into the culture of, of Philly? Or do you feel like it's just its distinct, you know, own microcosm of something else? Like, could you talk about the cultural relationships? Yeah, I mean, in some ways we are creating, you know, like a sort of, uh, it is a gathering energy to what's been happening with Black Star since the beginning, but it definitely is informed by um, living in Philadelphia and for many of us, our experiences with other cultural institutions, you know, mm-hmm. we owe a huge debt to places like Scribe Video Center and to Art Sanctuary Celebration of Black Writing and to Leeway Foundation and to Odunde, you know, even on some level. So I think about like 
so much has been happening in the city, obviously, for so long. And those of us who are either from here or living here, um, going to school here are like, you know, picking up on all of that. So, you know, I definitely acknowledge those lineages as setting the tone for either what we wanted to do or what we didn't want to do. And also thinking through, I think in some ways, a lack also of a particular attention to film culture that I was looking for that turned out not to just, not just be something that was in Philadelphia, that turned out to be something people were looking for more broadly than that. When you say, when you say film culture, what do you mean? Like a lack of film culture? Well, um, one thing in Philly is that we don't have a ton of repertory film spaces. We have Mm. had one long-term one, which is Lightbox Film Center. Um, And that's kind of it. There isn't, like in most cities, our museums don't have film programming um, and the colleges don't have public film programming the way that you might in another city. Like when I lived in D.C., you would go to films at the Smithsonian and then there were also independent film chains and, you know, you could see lots of things. And we used to have a fairly robust um, kind of art house chain, but since COVID, they have pretty much become very, very limited in their offerings. But even through all of that, there wasn't a ton of uh, Black film in these spaces, which is why the festival even began. But not only was I interested in film made by Black people, I was interested in certain kinds of film. So thinking about film that was, you know, highly like rigorous in its aesthetics and uh, interested in social justice or thinking about Black people globally, Um, that became, you know, something that I felt was missing that you might be able to get in other cities, but you could not get in Philly to me. After the break, Maori shares more about the history of Black Star Film Festival and what the future holds in store. I just I, I appreciate how pragmatic um, it sounds like you were about the festival and its creation, like filling a very specific gap that you saw around you, but that had these ripple effects. I mean, I would say globally, it's such a global festival. I, I just can appreciate like the the global nature of like blackness when I when I'm in that space. So thank you for that. Um, I do want to get into the origin story of Black Star. Do you remember the moment? when it clicked for you that like, I'm going to, I'm going to make this a festival. And then two, like, how did, how did it become such a many armed thing? Like Black Star Projects, you know, has its own architecture and sort of cultural landscape um, that is vast. And so, yeah. Could you talk about like, what was the moment that it, that it began to like grow into this geography? Yeah. So there wasn't a moment when I decided to create a festival. I um, was doing the series Kinoat and um, we weren't going to do anything for the summer. And I wanted to do something that was kind of vaguely focused on Africa. And because there were a bunch of celebrations in Brooklyn at the time and some other cities. And I was like, oh, I would love to do something that is multidisciplinary that's like a one day festival, but that's looking at fashion, looking at film, looking at art. 
And um, so I reserved some dates at Lightbox Film Center where I had a relationship and started with film before I went to the other discipline. And as I was going through a list of films that had screened around the world, and this was 2012, so I was looking at 2011, 2012, and realizing how many of the films had not come to Philadelphia. So for instance, an oversimplification of her beauty had not come to Philadelphia, which didn't make any sense, you know, given how it had already been traveling around the country. And so that after I started, I, I had very quickly like a list of 30 films. And then I stopped looking in the other disciplines because it became clear. I was like, we have a film festival on our hands, but that was not intentional. And it was not an open call. You know, it was completely curated that first year. And it happened like rather quickly. I think I'd started thinking about this in March. And then maybe by May, it was like, okay, we have a festival somewhere between March and May. We had come up with a name. It was named by my friend Yaba Blay and, you know, put together this like group of folks who volunteered to help me make it happen. We found $15,000 somehow. <laughs> You know, um, found. I want to find. I want to find fifteen thousand dollars. Well, I mean, I can't believe we did it for that. Given you know, now the festival costs you know almost a million dollars. So I mean, just thinking about what we were able to do, and so that was that was how the first festival came to be. And then when it was over, people were like, "Well, when is the next one?" <laughs> and Ebony dot com like wrote about us that first year called us the Black Sundance. So that became, you know, this sort of like expectation that we would exist. And um, so we continue to try to exist. The other projects we launched, we tried very hard to get funding for the festival. Obviously, we did really well in terms of audience and impact, all of that very early. But it was challenging to find funding. You know, the nonprofit arts world, unfortunately, like requires that you demonstrate capacity and all these things that are really difficult um, before you find funding as opposed to like the for-profit world where someone gives you money for a good idea. (laughs) I really wish we could reverse that. I think like if there had been VC funding, who knows where Blackstar would be right now, you know, but trying very hard to like meet these old structures, we hobbled for eight years, basically raising the money from zero to 100 every single year. And we being you know, a small group of people spending their weekends, their evenings, their vacation time working to make this festival happen, including myself. And uh, at some point, I think around year in 2018, a funder gave us two years of funding up front. And I gambled and said I would spend that second year on staffing rather than saving it for the next festival. And I it was like, the gamble was by spending on staffing, we will find that money and be able to, you know, earn it back. And that turned out to be true. And so that first gamble was paying myself a part-time salary, paying a development consultant and paying an admin. And um, then the next year we had a surplus and the surplus of funds I used to hire five people um, basically in a full-time manner. And we really got our board back in shape. And so that was 2020. And so in January, 2020, we launched Black Star Projects as an idea. <laughs> and um, then the, you know, kind of hung out the shingle and started going to funders like, here's a slate of programs. 
most of those, and, and the way that we got to that also want to be transparent. I had a funder uh, pull me to the side and say, you know, you're never going to raise money for a festival. We don't fund festivals. That's not what this field does. You have to have an organization and have programs. So what are the programs that Black Star, you know, is already doing? And so seeing, you know, we had already been using the program guides, putting interviews and essays and things like that in them. And in fact, um, in 2017 and 18, we did separate catalogs, you know, so we were like moving in that direction toward wanting to be more engaged with criticism and archival materials. And so Scene was the first program related to that since I think the fourth festival, we had been doing a symposium the day before the festival began. Um, it would be a one-day symposium focused on filmmakers, and that emerged into the William and Louise Greaves Filmmaker Seminar. We also had been doing you know, major conversations with filmmakers at the festival and had kept thinking about a podcast and just hadn't really been able to put it together, but that had been in the back of our minds. And so Many Lumens became another project. We had done two group shows and one show of photography in the past. So exhibitions were always in the culture. So many of the artists that participate in Black Star are also participating in gallery and museum, you know, opportunities. So that we wanted to keep that as part of our ethos. And the Philadelphia Filmmaker Lab emerged as a project because, frankly, we were getting critique um, that we didn't have enough Philadelphia filmmakers in the festival. And so a group of us sat around and thought about most of the people who work on Black Star are filmmakers themselves, if not some other kind of artist. And many of us were like, why don't I have a second film? Like what has sort of prevented me from getting that one done? And we thought about what was missing in the field again. And so that was how we designed the Philadelphia Filmmaker Lab. Yeah, I've heard a lot of great things about the lab. And so I'm wondering if you could talk, I guess, about how you hope for youth and emerging filmmakers to to relate to Black Star? You know, I try to imagine, um, or not even imagine, I think about how important it was for me to see Sankofa and Daughters of the Dust when I was mm. like 14, and then see them again when I was 19, mm. you know, and then see them again when I was like 23. And I think about it, each of those stages, which are all like, you know, different kinds of youth phases, they had an impact on me and how I like, saw the world and what I thought I could do um, as an artist. And so, I mean, that's always my hope that that's what Black Star is doing, not just for youth, but for everybody. Um, but I think for youth who have, you know, the, the veneer of the future, <laughs> you know, that it, it inspires them and motivates them to make work that is truly singular to them and unique and also recognize that they come from a lineage, that they are not, you know, making work in a vacuum, that they are able to, I think one of the things we're really interested in is really just like uh, illuminating like this diversity of voices. I feel like when we talk about diversity, it gets flattened. But like, if you think about it, people come from all over the globe. They have all these backgrounds. They have all these different abilities. They have all these different, you know, religious experiences. Etc. And so they're going to think differently and want to show up, you know, visually differently. And we don't have enough representation of that. And so people think they have to make work in a certain way, or they think that they have to, in order to be successful, that it looks one way. And so one of the, you know, many of the things I think we're doing is try to like say, here are various ways to make work. 
also here are ways to be successful. Here are different jobs you may not even know exist. You know, people don't know that there are programmers, film programmers or critics or, you know, just sort of presenting these kinds of things. So um, I have already met people because the festival is now going on its 12th year who found out about Black Star in high school and made decisions about their undergrad or grad based on those experiences. And they have shifted. Someone came up to me at the Barbie movie on Friday night and told me that, you know, he like black, he's like Black Star changed my life. And he's now producing comedy concerts. But it was like just even being in this cultural space, which is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's incredible. And and just resonates with me. Like I I my films are really experimental and I it can feel very like discouraging um some in some spaces to even just try to get feedback to improve it because it's not you know, what Hollywood is doing. And so for a lot of folks, they engage on that level with film. And so it, it literally has been through coming to Black Star that I'm like, oh, I could, I could be way freakier. I could be way freakier. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, yeah. So I, I appreciate that. I think that's, that's true for me too. I want to ask because you're such a, a powerful leader in like the arts organization world. I know you said you've had multiple careers too, um, but who, who, do you lean on for advice when it comes to like carving out new lanes, like doing something for you that's unprecedented or roles that haven't been filled before? Like, who do you look to for advice? Mm. That's a challenging one, to be honest. I don't know that I look to anyone to do something that hasn't been done before because mm. oftentimes people can be conservative about, mm. you know, those things. But I do have folks that I ask for advice from all the time. You know, I have a circle of friends that are really smart and experienced. And I also have some folks that I think kind of together are like mentors, you know, in different places. So, you know, I, I do have folks that I lean upon, but I don't know if it's for that specific thing. I think for yeah. the things that haven't been done before, oftentimes that is like an inspiration and mm -hmm. it is like, Let's see if this is possible. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. How how would you describe your leadership style? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what? Don't laugh. Don't chuckle. <laughs> I'm not laughing. I'm just I'm I'm currently working with an executive coach and dealing with, you know, feedback on my leadership. So I'm just sort of like, what is my leadership style? I I hope that I provide a lot of space for sort of like self-propelling. I wouldn't call it, let's say, fair because I'm also someone that's really interested in the details of how things get done or how they happen. But I really, really try to like foster room for a difference of opinion and for people to figure things out on their own and like own it because they figured it out on their own. So I don't know what that is called, but that's, that's what I hope. That's what I'm aiming for. Okay. That's interesting. It's an important thing to think about. So I'm glad you got your executive coach on board to develop that. Um, but what moments of joy stand out for you as you've planned now the 12th year of the festival? Well, I gotta say, I mean, we have, we've got this, a very large full-time staff now. We've brought on six people at the top of the year. And so we're now like 21 people full-time, which is incredible. And 
we have a really robust seasonal staff as well. And at our orientation for the team last week, I was really like, one, I didn't know all of the people. And that was like very fascinating to me. Um, but it was so well organized and thoughtful and just like beautifully done. And I felt, I felt really pleased that this random idea from 12 years ago has happened and also like led to people like these 50 people being in this room and being engaged. And, um, yeah, I felt really like, oh, okay, you know, that the kids are going to be all right, <laughs> you know, and they're not kids, but it was just sort of like, that I felt really proud in that moment. So I don't know quite joy, but it was definitely like a kind of like a beaming. Hmm. That's beautiful. As I mentioned to you before, my life in Baltimore, I live in Baltimore. I don't know if I did say that, but I've been here for a couple of years. I used to live in DC and then I grew up in New Jersey, but my life in, in Baltimore has already been touched by Lolly Bella. Um, even though I've been here very briefly and then the project itself is in, its earliest stages, it's still growing and becoming. For folks who don't know, it's a developing creative community in the city of Baltimore, and you should be excited about it. As one of the founding members, would you share a bit about what Lolly Bella is and how the collective vision for it uh, maybe connects to what you've been cultivating with Blackstar? Yeah, I think the idea of Lolly Bella, I mean, you said it so beautifully. It is a creative community. It is meant to become a hub for Black art specifically, and I think all of its forms, and uh, really hoping to foster, I think, intergenerational exchange and um, development of new voices and, you know, promotion of existing ones, right? And its relationship to the work that I've been doing is that it is, one, I mean, I was invited by Terrence to join. And so I think about like my relationship with Terrence is because of Blackstar. And so that continued sort of almost every single person in Lalabella, except for Bradford, I met, you know, in, well, in Toronto, but I met in the sort of like because of Blackstar. And so it's, it's definitely like a constant like reminder, <laughs> you know, of that relationship. Yeah, it's almost like there's no separation in many ways between the work because it's engaged in the same folks and field. Yeah, yeah. And and too, like Philly and Baltimore have such an interesting relationship as well that I I, I just think it's so fascinating. I, I guess because my mom is from Philly and her mom is from Philly. And so I never expected to come to Baltimore and feel like, oh, I'm home. Mm-hmm. Um but it it has been that. And so it, it's so, I guess it affirms that to see the connection that Lolly Bella and Blackstar sort of have. And like, the, there's like this vibration between the two cities that is so yeah. uh, visceral. What is on the horizon for you? Um, what, what are you looking forward to in 2024, in this, this fall? Yeah, what are you excited about? We are going to be doing a program in Atlanta uh, with the filmmaker Iyabo Kwayana surrounding the release of her film By Water, which is a film that I produced and that won Black Stars Pitch in 2020. And I'm really excited to organize this screening. I think Iyabo is like 
exceptionally talented. She's someone who's screened like five or six times a black star. She's one of my few friends, and I hope not to like out anybody, but who has always like kept her relationship with me separate from her relationship to black star. Like she would submit mm-hmm. without telling me, you know what I mean? She would just sort of yeah, like, yeah. be very formal with it. And her work is just like incredible. And she's uh, someone that I don't think people know the way that they should. And so we've been thinking about how we can like sort of push her forward. So that more like, you know, I guess be more of a platform. And so I'm excited about that. And I'm excited to do something in Atlanta, which is where I went to high school and where Iaba's family is and make this kind of a homecoming screening um, for her looking at a, a wider body of her work. Okay. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Is there any words you want to share of wisdom for young Black filmmakers out there? I mean, uh, wisdom is just a practice, you know, it's what was said to me and, you know, I didn't listen, but it's really important to just like make work as much as you can find a way. I also think about for this year's festival, I mean, it's going to be in a new location for us. So I'm definitely curious how uh, it is received. And yeah, I I think it's going to be a little tighter in terms of venue. So I think some of the uh, connectedness that we're known for hopefully can return very much and that people will like see each other and bump into each other. So I'm looking forward to what that's going to feel like. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Black Joy Archives. For more information about Black Star Film Festival and to sign up for their newsletter and podcast, go to blackstarfest.org. Next episode, we'll hear from Nahad Kader, the festival director for Black Star. You'll learn about her approach to programming this year's festival and a lot more. If this is your first time listening to our show, go check out our three episode series on Black Gospel Choirs. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more in the future, help us grow by giving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share the Black Joy archive with your friends and family. Call more Black Joy into your life and your inbox by signing up for our newsletter. Head over to Reckon.News and click on the Black Joy page, then enter your email address into the sign-up box. We also want to hear from you. What gives you Black Joy? Let us know by finding us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at BlackJoyReckon, or by shooting us an email at BlackJoy at ReckonMedia.com. This episode of Black Joy Archive was hosted by me, Mackenzie River Foy, and it's edited and produced by John Hammontree and Danny Buckingham, with additional production by Clarissa Brooks. For more podcasts from the Reckon family, check out Reckon Radio and the Reckon Interview wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, stay joyful. Thank you.